good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning. If you have a Bible this morning, I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And we'll spend the majority of our time this morning looking at verses, really the end of verse 4 down to verse 9. But we're going to read verses 1 to 11 to get started. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 1 all the way down to 11. And when you get there, please stand in honor of God's word. Romans 8, verses 1 through 11. I want to remind you that we believe these words were given by inspiration of God and are the only sufficient, certain, and authoritative rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus, from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the the mind on but but to set the mind on the Spirit, sorry, is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Let's pray. Our Father, use your word this morning to encourage the saints, to convict the sinner, to conform us into the image of your Son, to grow us together as a body. Help me this morning as I preach your word to be clear. Lord, remind us of the glories of this gospel that we have been saved not by our own doing, not by anything we have mustered, but by the glorious grace that you bestow freely. And Lord, remind us of the power and the work of the Spirit of God. The one who empowers our own obedience, the one who is, as you say, our helper, the one who is the guarantee of our inheritance, Lord, remind us of of those glorious truths as we hear your word preached this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. The sermon in the sentence this morning is that the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us 
who walk not according to the flesh, but who walk according to the Spirit. The righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. Last week, we looked at the first four verses, really, of Romans chapter 8, and what we saw there was an answer to that exasperating question that he asked at the end of chapter 7, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he answers it with this glorious reality that there is, in fact, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He says that Christ, by taking human form, condemned our sin in his flesh, becoming sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And if the first three and a half verses there in chapter 8 are a cause, then I think Paul proceeds at the end of verse 4 to argue the effects of that cause. If the cause is that he, he came and he, he took human form, condemned our sin in his flesh, then the effect then at the end of verse 4 is that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. He seems here to speak of both our justification, that we've been made right with God through the atoning blood of Christ, but also our sanctification, that based on that objective reality, that we are led by the Spirit and we are conformed into the image of Christ as we live according to the Spirit. And so he says here, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And there is a sense in which he's speaking of both. But then in verses 5 to 8, which is where we'll spend the majority of our time this morning, verses 5 to 8, he further compares the man who walks according to the flesh and the man who walks according to the Spirit. And he says there's only one, only one of those men can it be true of that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in him. And so as we approach this passage, I want to be upfront with you that there are faithful brothers and sisters who, who kind of land in two different camps, you could say, on what this text means. There, there are, there's one view, one school of thought about this passage that Paul here is again, like, like he was in Romans 7, again speaking of this inner battle within the Christian within the, the person who is regenerate, this inner battle to continually set his mind on the things of the spirit rather than to set his mind on the things of the flesh. And then the second school of thought really is that Paul is creating a distinction. He's, he's drawing a line between the man who is apart from Christ, who, is, who has not been given new life, and the man who is in Christ, who has been given new life. This distinction between the unregenerate man and the regenerate man, the one who sets his mind on the flesh and the one who sets his mind on the spirit. And while I tend toward the second camp, I do believe that this text, while it primarily argues for the distinction between this man who is of the flesh and this man who is of the spirit, I also think he applies this truth very clearly to our sanctification as believers. Paul has an, a reminder in mind for us, or maybe more strongly, a warning in mind for us. That the end of setting our mind on the flesh is death. That if you are here this morning and you are knowing that you are giving in to your pet sin, what some might call, numbing yourself to the reality of its consequence, then Paul has a word. And if you're here this morning and you're flirting with the sin you see your peers reveling in, ignoring the end that it promises 
Paul has a word. And this morning, if you are here and you just need to be reminded what it means to be sanctified, I think Paul has a word. And so why does this matter? Well, I would assume that most of you, when you look down at Romans 8, you're reminded of, through your Christian lives, the glorious promises that it gives. I mean, we look through Romans 8, and it is rightfully considered one of the most comforting and empowering passages in all of the scriptures. It's full of promises for what Paul calls us. If you look in verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. It's full of promises for us, promises of the indwelling of the Spirit, promises of sonship, of glories indescribable, of sovereign care, of purpose in our pain, of victory over sin and death. But these promises, and this is, this is why this matters, these promises are not promised to everyone. These are not promises that, that are given to all men. They're given to us in verse 4. To those who, if you look back at verse 1, whose sin has been condemned already in Christ's flesh. And so this morning, my hope, the question before Paul and the question before us is, in whom is the righteous requirement of the law fulfilled? Or if you want to ask it a different way, who is the us presented in verse 4? But before we can do that, we have to look at who the us is not. And so if you're taking notes this morning, there's really two major headings that I want to look into this morning. The first is those who walk according to the flesh, and then second, those who walk according to the Spirit. So first, those who walk according to the flesh. In verses 5 to 8, Paul really gets to the bottom of what it truly means to walk according to the flesh. And you'll see this word for over and over and over again. And the for here is not, is not an instance of continuing an argument or getting higher into an argument, the four really is an instance of Paul explaining more deeply what is actually happening in those who walk according to the flesh. And so every time he says four, we're going one level deeper. And if you think of it as an ocean, by the end of verse eight, we get to the floor of that ocean of what it means to walk according to the flesh. And so in order to do this, I want to ask some questions. The first question I want to ask is, what does it mean to walk according to the flesh? If you look at verse 4, it says, In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Well, what does it mean to walk according to the flesh? The flesh. This word walk in the Greek means conduct of life. It's this idea of, of your regular practice, your patterns. To walk is, is, is what is your bent, and he says to walk according to, so in accord with, according to the dictates of, following after, agreeing to the standard of what? The flesh. And in the New Testament, this word flesh almost always, unless it's talking about marriage and becoming one flesh, almost always carries with it a negative connotation. It's this idea of being carnal, of being worldly, of doing anything apart from God or apart from faith. And thus would even include the things that some might consider, quote unquote, quote, good, that are done apart from God and apart from faith. And so what does it mean then to walk according to the flesh? Well, it means to conduct your life in accord with the worldly desires of the flesh. To conduct your life in accord with the worldly desires of the flesh. And you might say, 
uh, Blake, what are those desires? Well, Paul has already told us in Galatians 5. He says, Galatians 5, 19 to 21, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Charles Hodge said to be, to live your life in according in accordance with the desires of the flesh is to be governed by your corrupt nature. It's a life lived toward yourself as God. It's a life lived with the mantra, I want that, I'll get it, and I'll do whatever it takes. It's a life lived chasing these lesser pleasures that Paul has spoken of in Galatians chapter 5. These things that you think would be good, but they're not. But lest we think, and and Paul is careful to show us here, lest we think that sin or being someone who walks in the flesh is just starting at the hand level or at the action level, he says, no, there's there's another question to answer in verse 5, which is, where does this walking come from? If you look in verse 5, there's that word for. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Where does this walking come from? Paul says it's the mind. What looks like just walking according to the flesh on the surface is actually the result of a mind that is set on the flesh. Paul says here there is an inextricable link between walking according to the flesh and a mind, verse 5, being set on the flesh. This word set on the, a mind set on the flesh is, is a verb, really, that if, if you translate it literally, is to mind. So it's the sense of not merely thinking about, but pursuing. I always think of like when my mom would say, mind me, right? It didn't mean listen to what I say. It means do what I say, right? Live in that lifestyle of what I say. He says, set their minds on to mind not to just think about, but to pursue, to desire in the deepest part of you, to be motivated by. He says, those who walk according to the flesh actually have their minds set on the flesh. They are minding the works of the flesh, the things of the flesh. This is a word that speaks of affections. It speaks of allegiances. It's not just some casual passing of the things of the flesh. It is, it is affection for and allegiance to And what are the things of the flesh? It's those things that pertain to those sins, that pertain to that carnality, that pertain to that ignoring and refusing of God. Matthew Henry said, Carnal pleasure, worldly profit and honor, the things of sense and time are the things of the flesh which unregenerate people mind. The man is as the mind is. When we look here at Romans 8, what we find is this picture of a man, a man who is not merely doing things of the flesh, but whose mind is set after them. And the reality is that sin never begins with our hands. Sin never begins with our hands, but rather with our affections, with our allegiances. This is why Jesus indicts hate as murder. This is why Jesus indicts lust as adultery. Because sin never begins on the outside. It begins with with our affections, with our allegiances. And so we have to refuse to believe the lie of neutrality that says that, that well, people are, are neither good nor bad. They're just acted on, on from the outside and they just choose to be either good or bad. 
The scriptures teach us very clearly that we're all born with affections bent towards sin, toward dethroning the God of the universe, toward putting ourselves in his place, that every part of us from birth is tainted with sin, that our thoughts about God are tainted with sin, that our thoughts about ourselves, that our thoughts about others, our loves, our ambitions, even our good deeds are tainted with sin. And this battle against sin is often fought in the mind. It's not something out there that preys on the carnal man. No, he gladly sets his mind on the things of the flesh because he loves those lesser pleasures. And even as believers, and this is where I want to make sure we understand Paul's point, even as believers, we have to be mindful of this enticing power of sin. It would be folly to say, well, now that I'm in Christ, I never think like that. Interestingly enough, Jesus uses this exact same language in Matthew 16 when he's speaking to Peter. In Matthew chapter 16, Peter has just basically pronounced that Jesus is the Christ. He is, he is, um, said that, and Jesus says, uh, on this rock, I'll build my church. And then we have in verse 21, this account, and it says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me. Now listen to this, for you are setting your mind, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter's words to Jesus prove the power of sin to preach to us that we can claim Christ, but pursue our own evil desires. Peter here has said true things about Christ, and then he says, no, no, not to suffer, Lord. And Jesus' appropriate answer is to tell him where that Sin, that lie originated with Satan himself. It's the same temptation that Jesus endured in the wilderness. Just bow down to me, he, Jesus, uh, Satan said. Just bow down to me and I'll give you all of this. A mindset on the flesh is contrary to God, is contrary to his word, and it's contrary to his gospel. But... Paul gets even deeper here in verse 6. He says, not only are those who walk according to the flesh, the ones who have set their minds on the flesh, he tells us what it actually means to set your mind on the flesh. What is, what is the, if you're, if you're peeling back the layer, if you're getting deeper into this ocean called the flesh, what is it to set your mind on the flesh? Well, verse 6 says, for to set the mind on the flesh is death. What is the nature of this mind set on the flesh? It is death. Now, this is a fascinating construction here in verse 6 to me. He does not say, for to set the mind on the flesh leads to death. He doesn't say, for to set the the mind on the flesh comes from death. He doesn't say, to set the mind on the flesh ends in death or feels like death. He uses a specific word here in verse 6 to talk about the mindset on the flesh, and it's the word is. He says, to set the mind on the flesh is, in its essence, death. Well, what does death mean? I think we can, we can sit around and think about all the meanings of death, but it, it would seem in this text that death here is all-encompassing. 
One commentator said, all the miseries arising from sin, as well as physical death, as the loss of a life, consecrated to God and blessed, on him on earth, blessed in him on earth. There's no life in this death. And he says, to set the mind on the flesh is death. And I don't want us to give in to the temptation to think as we, as we read through the scriptures to say, oh yeah, what he means is that, that if, we, if we live a life like this, this pattern of life, well, it'll just end up in death. While that's true, I think that's only a, a piece of this. It's only a part of this. To set the mind on the flesh is itself death while living. It is itself death from beginning to end. When he says to set the mind on the flesh is death, he means it's death from the start to the finish and everywhere in between. To set on the mind of the flesh, its beginning is death. If you recognize Ephesians 2, chapter 2, verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. It begins with death. Not only did it begin with death, its fullness is death. It's death while living. Paul says in 1 Timothy, she who is a self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. This is the story of every person apart from Christ who walks the earth, that it's death from the beginning and it's death in its fullness. Ultimately, there is no true fulfillment. There is no true happiness. There is no true life in the things of this world. And when we look to the world and we see their quote-unquote life, we with Paul acknowledge that, acknowledge that it is no real life, that all life apart from Christ is death. Like Moses said to God in Exodus 33, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Life without Christ is not life at all, it's death. But not only is its fullness death, its end is death. James 1 says, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Philippians 3 says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Their minds set on earthly things. What kind of life is that? He says it is death. Their end is destruction. Even in Galatians 5 that we've read, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And we look to this truth and we look to the world around us and while it is clearly pronounced death, the carnal men in our world who believe it to be life are running headlong into it and toward it running headlong into death that leads to more death for all of eternity. And my question for myself and my question for us this morning is, do we believe this? As believers in Christ, do we believe this to be true? That to set the mind on the flesh is death? Because I think perhaps that we find ourselves at times believing that, well, that little pet sin that I'm harboring, it's not actually the one that leads to death. Or that maybe since it's not bothering anyone else and I can keep it secret, it's not really synonymous with death. 
Brother, sister, I would remind you what John Owen has already told us, that be killing your sin or your sin will be killing you. Do we believe this? That to set the mind on the flesh is itself death. But I think in order that we would understand, Paul goes even a step further in verses 7 and 8. He says, what is the state of those whose mind is set on the flesh, who live in this this state that is synonymous with death, what is their state? What is the reality for someone who lives in this way? He says in verse 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. He starts by saying that the, the man who is in the flesh is hostile to God. And what's, what's amazing here is he gets deeper, as if you could think that there wasn't anything worse than being dead to God, than living a life that is all deadness. He says, actually, it's not just that you are dead to him. You are at enmity with him. You are hostile toward him. Charles Hodge said, this is the reason why the mind of sinful man is death. In its nature, it is opposed to God, who is the life of the soul. His favor is life, and therefore opposition to him is death. James 4.4 says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God? Paul would say later on, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. This is the natural state, not merely some neutral state, but at enmity with God. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to him. At enmity with God, an enemy with God, walking in constant opposition to the God of the universe, a bent towards setting himself up as God in the place of the true God. I think this acts as a warning to us this morning that there are no little sins. To live in sin is to set the mind on the flesh, and to set the mind on the flesh is dead, and to be dead in sin is to be at enmity with God. There are no little sins. But not only is it say he's hostile, if you keep on going in verse 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. There's a refusal and an inability to submit to God's law. Hatred for God's law is synonymous with hatred for God because he himself is the author of the law. It communicates who he is. And Jesus spoke of this. We read part of it, uh, a similar part of it this morning. But in Matthew 13, it says, this is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see. And hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears, they can barely hear. And their eyes, they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. The man in his natural state has no ability to obey and no desire And he ends here at this bottom of the ocean floor in in verse 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Notice he changes here the way that he describes it. He says those who are in the flesh, under the government of the flesh, the one who set his mind on the flesh has no ability to please God in any possible way. 
He has no ability to change himself, no desire to change himself, nothing to present to God on his own behalf. Even every quote-unquote good thing tainted with sin, every thought, every word, every deed, every lack of deed is by nature displeasing to God. He would say in Proverbs 15, 8, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. And here is the floor of this ocean called flesh. The man who walks according to the flesh is spiritually bankrupt. He has nothing to offer God, no desire or ability to offer anything, even if he, he did have it. And this is the natural state of man. And I want to say this morning to you, if you're here and you're apart from Christ, this is your state. You're not neutral. You're not like the world may want to tell you that you are basically good. There's nothing you can do, according to verse 8, to please God. There's nothing you can do to get on his good side or to fix yourself. The call to you is to, is to run to him, to abandon all hope of saving yourself, to look to his perfect life and death on your behalf, to see him who died as the atoning sacrifice for your sin and place in your place, the one who rose to give you life and place all of your hope and trust in him. Throw yourself onto him. And I think the question, though, for us as believers, as we get to the bottom of this, as we've gotten to verse 8, can we who are in Christ be characterized in this way? You might be sitting here and wondering if there's any part of this description of the man of the flesh that we as those who are in Christ can rightfully be called. Those of us who cannot rightfully experience any condemnation, because as, as verse 1 has already told us, there's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. We can't, receive, we can't experience any real condemnation because Christ was condemned in our place. But can we fall prey to setting our mind on the flesh? I think Paul would answer yes. He would go on in verse 13 of chapter 8 to say, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. He would go on to command in Colossians chapter 3, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Because the reality is he has delivered us. Colossians 1 would say he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And yet we seem able and more often than we'd like to admit willing to leave that glad freedom and walk on over and hop that fence back to the dominion of death. To revel in the fleeting pleasures of sin and to set our minds on the flesh. May that never be. We don't stay there. We must heed this warning from Paul that to walk in the flesh, to set the mind on the flesh, is death. The promises sin makes ultimately come up empty. The, the fleeting pleasures of sin turn into pain. The, joy, the fleeting joys of sin turn into sorrows. There are, there are times as believers... When we look up, right, and we say, I have been setting my mind according to the flesh. And what do we do? We repent and we run back to him. There are two dangers really to avoid here that I want to make sure that we 
understand. Two dangers that I think would cheat the gospel of its true power. What I don't want you to hear me say at the end of verse 8 is that, well, you should just be good because God likes it when you're good, so be good. I don't want you to hear me say, well, if you could just be more moral, then everything would be fine. Because the truth is, if you have the Spirit, then His power gives you the ability to love. He gives you the ability to love God and to set your minds on the things of the Spirit. And so I don't want you to hear me say, well, just be good, because that's not what Paul is saying. And we're going to get to what Paul's saying in just a second. But I also don't want you to sit here and hear me and, and over the next few weeks, hear all that Paul says in Romans 8 and to be like, well, I mean, there are Christians worse than me. So I mean, what's the big deal? God doesn't really care about how I live because positionally I am righteous. And the answer is the same. If you have the Spirit, then by His power, He gives you the ability to obey and to love and to set your mind on the things of the Spirit. So be warned, I think Paul would have for us. Be warned. To set your mind on the flesh is death. But interestingly enough, even though I think that's the major thrust of what he is trying to accomplish in these verse, first verses 5 through 8, he also gives us this picture of those who walk according to the Spirit. We've seen in whom the righteousness required of the law cannot be fulfilled, and now we have to turn our attention to those in whom it has been fulfilled, the us, who are those who walk according to the Spirit. So if we go back through verses 4 through 8, what we see is a picture uh, contrasted with Paul's discussion of the man who walks according to the flesh as this picture of this man who walks according to the Spirit. And what does it mean to walk according to the Spirit? Verse 4 says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, a conduct of life that is in accord with the Spirit. It means our own mind, our own being, being transformed by the Spirit of God. And what's amazing is this walk that he gives us is empowered totally by the Spirit. How do we, how do we walk according to the Spirit? Well, he says in verse 2 already, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. He started it. Not only did he start this walk, he is empowering it. Jesus said that he was the helper. And not only is he empowering the walk according to the Spirit, but he is sustaining it. That is, we prayed earlier, he is the guarantee of our inheritance. He is the one who is holding us and carrying us along to the end. And so what does it mean to walk according to the Spirit? It means to conduct your life in accord with the holy desires of that Spirit. F.F. F. Bruce said, Christian holiness is not a matter of painstaking conformity to the specific precepts of an external law code. It is rather a question of the Holy Spirit's producing His fruit in one's life, reproducing those graces which were seen in perfection in the life of Christ. To walk according to the Spirit is to conduct your life in accord with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit desires of the Spirit that He put in you Himself. And so what does it look like? Well, we already know. Galatians 5 goes on to tell us. It told us what the, what the fruit of someone who walks according to the flesh is. Well, what are the fruits of people who walk according to the Spirit? Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This isn't moralism. 
This is the natural obedience to the commands of God, birthed in the believer by the power of the Spirit. Walking according to the Spirit means conducting our lives in accord with the holy desires that the Spirit put in us in the first place. And where does this walking then, if we're asking the same questions, where does such walking in the Spirit come from? Well, Paul has already answered. Verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the, on the things of the Spirit. They mind, they think about, they pursue, they desire in the deepest part of them, they're motivated by, their affections are toward, their allegiances are toward the things of the Spirit. The things of the Spirit that He puts in us that really I think could be summed up, right, in loving God and in loving our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus says that is the whole law and the prophets. This walking comes from a mind that is set on the things of the Spirit, a mind that is set on Christ, that the Spirit does by giving life to our mortal body so that now we see Christ as glorious and Christ as beautiful. And interestingly enough, Paul uses the same phrase that we find in verse 4, when he says that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, he uses this exact same phrase in chapter 13. He says in chapter 13, verse 8, Oh, no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Who empowers such love? The Spirit of God. And the man who walks according to the flesh has his mind set on, I mean, according to the Spirit, has his mind set on the things of the Spirit. And I love how this gets into the opposite of what he says happens when your mind is set on the flesh. If you look at verse 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the, the mind on the spirit is life and peace. He says to set the mind on the spirit is life. Life real and genuine. What kind of life have you been raised to? A gloriously full life. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. And church, this is... This is is so vital to our understanding of this Christian life that normal is gloriously full. That a common life in Christ is gloriously full. That the ordinary Christian life is far fuller than the most extraordinary life lived according to the flesh. This is a life that's full and real and genuine. But what, is, what kind of life is it? It's a life in the Spirit. It's a life that is empowered by the Spirit to live a life of holiness. It's a, it's a life that is empowered by the Spirit to be conformed into the image of Christ. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. But not only that, it's a life starting now and lasting forever. Like he says in Colossians, when Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. This is life eternal, never-ending joy, joy in the presence of Christ, merited not by ourselves, but freely given by God himself in Christ, empowered by the Spirit who dwells in us. And the glorious part of this, when he says, verse 6, 
For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Those are, those are purposefully opposites. Why? Because if you are in Christ, then you are in no danger of being condemned. If you are in Christ, your condemnation has already been swallowed in Christ. Those who have been justified are being sanctified and we will be glorified. And it is as sure as the eternality of our life that it will come to pass. Which leads us into what else he says this setting our minds on the spirit is. Not only is it life, but he says it is peace. Peace is something that is unique to the Christian. It's, it's completely peculiar. This peace involves, I think, two things, and the first of which is assurance. He says to set your mind on the Spirit is life and is peace. Why do we have assurance? Why do we have peace when we set our minds on the Spirit? Because we realize that it was never based on our work anyway. And if it was never based on our work anyway, then it does not depend on us. It depends on the Spirit giving life to our bodies, and the Spirit is perfect. We can even look back at verse 3. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. Wherever we look into the Scriptures, and it would seem logical to say, well, this is what we did. That's not what the Scriptures say. They say this is what God did. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. We have assurance today, not because we can hold so tightly to him, but because he is the one who gave life to our mortal bodies through his spirit, and he is the one holding tightly to us. And so to set the mind on the spirit is life and is peace. That peace is assurance, but I think that peace is also contentment. The real meaning of Philippians 4, that we can indeed go through various trials and difficulties and learn that in whatever situation we are to be content. Paul says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in every, any, in every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Because the strength for this life does not come from us. The strength to go through difficulty and the, the strength to be humble in abundance comes from him. And the glorious truth that Paul is showing us here in verse 6 to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. We have Christ, and by the power of the Spirit, we are being conformed into his image. We have him. What else do we need? But finally, I think we see what is the state of those with this mind. Paul doesn't specifically say it. In verses 7 and 8, he goes on to talk about the state of those who set their minds according to the flesh. But what is what can we infer based off of what he says about those who set their mind according to the flesh? Since everything he has said about those who set their mind according to the Spirit is opposite of those who have set their mind according to the flesh, then we can infer that those who set their mind on the Spirit have relationship with God. This glorious truth of the gospel that he took his enemy and made us friends. That those who were at enmity with him, he adopted into his family. That the state of 
those who have their mind set on the spirit is that we have relationship to God. We are not in hostility with him. We are not condemned by him because our condemnation has been taken in Christ. We have relationship to God. Not only that, we have the ability to submit to God's law. And this is, this is so amazing, the power of the Spirit in us, that we have been taken from, from people who did not want to, nor were we able to submit to God's law, and he gives us the power to obey it. Not only does he give us the ability to submit to God's law, he gives us love for it. He took hatred for the law, or at least only love so that we could look good to others. And now we love it. Why do we love it? Because it reveals his character to us. Because it shows us who he is. And not only that, if you look at verse 8, those who are the flesh cannot please God. And we know this to be true from Romans 6. And we'll see it even further as we go on in Romans 8. That we have the ability to please God in everything. Seriously, in everything. That if we're in Christ... The objective reality is that if you are in Christ, if the Spirit has given you life, then God is at this moment pleased with you because he is pleased with Christ. It's an objective fact. It's not based on anything you've done. It's not based on anything you ever do. It's simply based on his grace poured out toward you, the Spirit that's giving life to your mortal body. How is this possible? It's only possible by his grace. Calvin said, there is, however, no reason why anyone should on this account attribute salvation to works. For though God begins our salvation and at length completes it by renewing us after his own image, yet the only cause is his good pleasure, whereby he makes us partakers of Christ. And so I want to leave you this morning with the question that we started with. Verse 4 says that the righteous requirement of the law will be fulfilled in us. Who is that us? And I think Paul answers it here in verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. It's as if Paul says, you know who you are. You know who you are. We've, We've heard who we are. And the flesh has no part of that. Who is the us? Well, he's already told us the us is their saints. The ones who are righteous by faith. The ones who are justified by his grace as a gift. The redeemed. Those who walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham. Those who share in that faith. Those who have peace with God. Those who have access by faith into his grace. The the once ungodly who Christ died for. Those justified by his blood and saved from the wrath of God. The reconciled ones. Those with eternal life. Those who are dead to sin and alive to God. The crucified with Christ. Those who consider themselves dead to sin and alive to God. Those who present ourselves to God. Those who set free who are set free from, him, from sin, those who have become obedient from the heart, those who are being sanctified, those who have died to the law, those who belong to another, those who serve in the new way of the Spirit, those for whom there is no condemnation left, and now those who are in the Spirit and who have the Spirit in them. That is who you are. Set your minds on the things of the Spirit, for he has condemned our sin in his flesh. He has fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law in us.
Let's pray. 